Today on episode 124 of Teaching in Higher Ed, Maha Belly talks about intercultural learning. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives, which allows us to be even more present for our students. I'm thrilled to be welcoming back to the show today, Dr. Maha Bali, and she was on episode 108, talking about collaboration, and today she's going to be joining me talking about intercultural learning. She is an associate professor of practice at the Center for Learning and Teaching at the American University in Cairo. She's a full-time faculty developer, and she also teaches creative educational game design to undergrads. She is co-founder of virtuallyconnecting.org, co-founder and co-facilitator of Ed Contexts, and editor at her favorite journal, Hybrid Pedagogy, and blogger at Prof Hacker. She's also international director of Digital Pedagogy Lab. In a nutshell, she is a self-described learnaholic, writeaholic, and passionate, open, and connected educator. Welcome back to the show, Maha. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back talking to you. You and I are funny on Twitter because I never calculate what time it is in Egypt, but I do know that you're known for late nights and early mornings and everything in between. But we got into some good Twitter conversation around the issue of intercultural learning. And I'm so glad that you were willing to come back on and talk a little bit about this. I'm really happy to be back. And this is one of my favorite topics. And like I was just telling you this morning, it's been one of those not this morning, like starting this morning until now, it's 11 p.m. now. This has been a topic of the day, so I'm really, really ready for it. So. Oh, good, good. Well, you were so gracious to send me your thesis, and I was sharing with you that things have been a little busy in our household here, and so I, I literally could have just not just read the section of your thesis, but I wanted to read the whole entire thing. It's It's fascinating, and would you just share a little bit about the broad thesis topic and then and then the topic that we're going to be sharing about today? Right. So so my thesis about, in general, about the development of critical thinking for students at my institution. And what I did is, I mean, I interviewed students who had some level of critical thinking based on what I knew teaching them. And then whatever themes came out of there, I developed further by interviewing faculty and staff and, and reflecting on my own experiences and doing all kinds of other kinds of research. And then I just came up with like four broad areas where that develop critical thinking in the context of AUC, which is where I am. And one of the chapters is about intercultural learning. And that's actually the last one I talk about because the institution I'm at is already bicultural. It's an American institution in Egypt. So that's that's already a bicultural institution just in its own identity. But there's also a lot of opportunities for intercultural learning uh, that students identified as helping them learn. And I just got really into it as I was doing that part of my thesis, you know, researching intercultural learning in a lot of depth. In itself, it's very connected to critical thinking, right? But it's also a thing on its own. 
Uh, and and so I'm I'm still fascinated by it until now. So I'm really happy to be talking about it with someone. I have read a couple of books about critical thinking before, but by no means am an expert after the two <laughs> the two books. I, I will say though, and actually we had a guest come on and talk about critical thinking, and it's been one of the most popular episodes. So I know it's something that a lot of us in higher ed want to help develop in our students. And of course, we've had lots of conversations about diversity and about cultural competence. But this is the first time it's coming together. And for you, it sounds like that was more second nature. But for me, I thought, well, oh, of course, these things do go together. And that is some of the (laughs) problems is when we when we have less maturity, in our cultural competence, some of that is, of course, due to a lack of critical thinking, but I just hadn't put it together like that. So I'm so excited about right. today's conversation. Right. It's a chicken and egg thing. Yeah. As I was just telling you before, it's like the more you're exposed, the more critical you are, but then you need to be a little bit critical to allow yourself to be properly exposed, to be open to uh, listening to different viewpoints and so on. I will talk about this a little bit more as we go. Yeah, I was mentioning to you how accessible the reading, the writing style was to me and how much I just, I mean, I dove right in and I thought I was going to have a harder time with it and started to get nervous. Oh, no, am I going to have enough time to prepare to make best use of your expertise on this? And I was excited just at how rich it is, but also how your writing just makes it accessible for all different types. You're not trying to, you know, highbrow with with making it inaccessible to people. I really appreciated that. And there were things that really stood out to me. I've got, you, you see, I, it all printed out with all these highlights and stars and everything. And I wanted to read just one quote. Oh, I got that, stars? Yeah, there's, there's stars. <laughs> Are they gold stars? <laughs> well, I only had a blue pen. So they're, they're blue, <laughs> blue stars. <laughs> I'm going to read this quote. And then I know there's one that you really meant a lot to you as well. And this is from a 2001 source I'm not sure if I'll pronounce it right, Byram. I don't know how to pronounce it either. Byram Mattel, yeah. And and just so people know, we'll have all of the references that we refer to in the show notes so that people can access them and learn even more. And also, of course, to your thesis as well, if you're open to that. Oh, sure. It's it's open access. I thought so. Of course. (laughs) So here's the quote. It is not the purpose of teaching to try to change learners' values but to make them explicit and conscious in any evaluative response to others. There is nonetheless a fundamental values proposition, which is, oh, thank you, position, which acknowledges respect for human dignity and equality of human rights as the democratic basis for social interaction. I love that. It it reminds me of a of they talk about making sure there's a diversity statement in your syllabus of some kind and I think that's my diversity <laughs> statement that we can all express different points of views and I'm not going to try to change your values but there is just this whole idea of it does come down to human dignity and equality of human rights as the democratic basis for social interaction. I love that one. Thank you so much. Yeah, and, and we were just talking earlier, for you, this is one of your favorite quotes. And I was saying my favorite quote is just one in the page before it. Mm-hmm. But I also get what you're saying about the part about emphasizing sort of the purpose of why you're doing it. And the, the you know, the respect for human dignity and equality and human rights as as the purpose of why you're doing it. But you don't change do it by trying to change learners' values, but by making them explicit. The one that I like more is a quote by Bakhtin, who's a Russian uh, scholar. It's a 1961 quote. And I've never, I have, 
uh, one of his books, but I've never gone around to reading it because it's so hard to read. But <laughs> what I, what I, the quote which I love is he says, "I am conscious of myself and become myself only while revealing myself for another, through another, and with the help of another." And so f- that one is is maybe a more personal one, and it talks about how you get to know yourself better as you interact with other people and as you interact with people. Probably, it doesn't say that, but I think also different from yourself, who help you question, not necessarily by directly questioning you, but just by being different and by spending a lot of time with people who are different than yourself, you start to sort of get to know yourself even better. And I I was just talking to you just before we went on air about when you leave your culture and go to live somewhere else and how that helps you question your own values and, and what you've been taking for granted and your assumptions. It can be a very, obviously, a stage of disequilibrium, right? And it can it can be very disturbing, but it can also be very enriching and a, and a great time for de- growth and development. Talk a little bit more about that, The what opportunities our students have to learn as they are exposed more to theory, and then some of the limitations of theory as it comes to our own intercultural learning. Right. So, I mean, there's... It's the problem with with being exposed to theory is that you have this distance from whatever it is you're reading about, and it's so abstract that oh, you get what it means in theory, but you don't really get what it means to actually live it in practice or to see it happening or to interact with someone who has to deal with. Um, I mean, I'm thinking indignities. I think of a certain kind. So, for example. Today, just today, Paul Prinsloo shared on Twitter an article about uh, what it means to travel with an African passport and what happens to you in the airport and the indignities of asking for a visa and being refused entry to certain countries and being placed in a certain place where I think the guy called us Africans. He said passport undesirables, I think, something like that. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And yeah, if you're American or European, it's very easy for you to get anywhere. And if you are Arab or African, it's actually pretty difficult for you to get pretty much anywhere, even nearby countries. Like people are just, and and the thing is that I've heard Americans laugh or joke about maybe not being able to get into Egypt because they're American. And it really makes me angry because it's not funny. You really don't have problems getting into this country. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And But if you've seen the way I, you know, someone like me gets randomly checked 50% of the time, at an airport, if you traveled with me often enough and you saw how often I get chosen for a random check and you saw how the people, you know what I mean? If you see that, if you have a close enough relationship with someone who's like that uh, and you see it, it's completely different than hearing about it. And it's, you know, thinking it just happens like every now and then, or maybe it's just that one person's experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. And of course, even if I did travel often with you and I was able to observe that happening to you, it still is not the same thing as it happening to me. Right, right. And I was thinking of, of people who have very, very close relationships to someone of a different culture, like they're married to someone from a different culture, for example. They're obviously, well, there are two things, right? They, they had to be originally culturally sensitive in some way to be open to, to having that kind of relationship with someone so different from them, right? But also they develop it more by their interaction with that person and their family and so on. And then when they have children, then it becomes even a, a bigger issue. And they're still who they are. You know, they're still not that person, but they have a better experience of of that different culture than if they had been uh, just, you know, themselves marrying someone of a very similar culture. And there's, um, and I think maybe that 
what I'm going to say now is probably not necessarily in the part you were reading, but there's this thing about people who immigrate to a new country and whether they assimilate or integrate or do something different. And so whether they assimilate and just become like the new culture or whether they separate and remain, like try to hold on to their own culture and whether they try to find some something in between where they can maintain elements of their own identity but still be able to, to interact well with others. And that's talking about people who are immigrants going into another place. But also it's, it's really important to think about us and how we welcome new people into our own culture, whether it's, you know, whether it's even your company or, you know, or your department, not necessarily your entire country, and whether we're asking them to be more exactly like us if they want to fit in. You know, do they have to have whatever kind of values we have to be able to, to interact with us? Or... Or do we encourage them to remain their, their own selves and do we, or do we give them a way to stay them, themselves but still, you know, integrate with us? Yeah. One of the things you talk about is the impact of intercultural experiences on students' critical thinking and through some of the interviews that you did, how it helped them recognize and understand different worldviews. And then the next thing you said was recognize their own personal biases. Because one of the things I think can be a challenge is when, if we're doing this ourselves, reading about other people's experiences, or as you said, sharing the theory with our students, that so often it can it can just sound like we're talking about somebody else. Oh, yeah. the, those people that have those biases will shame on them. You know, if only yeah. they would stop having those biases. But, but <laughs> where and maybe this actually yeah. starts to put us on the part of the conversation about this being a continuum, because yeah. I first have to recognize that I have biases, <laughs> that it's not just those other people that do, but that they are in me and that that probably I can never rid myself of them completely. And in fact, some of our biases actually help us stay yeah. safe. I mean, that's how we've been able to survive through generations. But right. but that we that is a part of the process is to recognize, oh, I have these biases. And and I thought that was a, a nice one. Do you want to talk a little bit now about the continuum that it's not yes. just binary? So, I mean, the first one that just, you know, this thinking between the difference between theory and practice, I was thinking that maybe the King and Baxter Magolda model, it's called the developmental model of intercultural maturity. Mm -hmm. And what I like about it is that it's not just a spectrum, but it's also multidimensional. Mm. So it talks about a cognitive aspect, an intrapersonal, so metacognitive aspect, and an interpersonal aspect. And the thing is, if you just read about the theory, then maybe you're developing your cognitive aspect of it, you know, like just sort of knowing that there are different worldviews out there and understanding the history of them or whatever. But you just knowing them doesn't mean that when you come to interact with someone who's different from yourself, that you're necessarily going to be able to do it well. So, you know, you know, just knowing something doesn't mean that you're not going to say something stupid to someone <laughs> or something insensitive when you're when you're dealing with them. And then there's also the metacognitive dimension, which is questioning yourself. And I think, again, learning theory doesn't necessarily make you question your biases in the same way that engaging with another person may challenge your viewpoints. Yeah, uh, because you ha you have a lot of choice over how deeply to question yourself if there isn't a person in front of you who's really, you know, urgently asking you to do that or, or making you do that or, or that you need to change your behavior like right now if you need to and, you know, go back and think about why you're doing it. But even within each of these, there's a spectrum of where, you know, how far you can be in each of these. So, for example, 
you know, sometimes when you're first exposed to something, I can't remember which model does that, but they say sometimes when you're first exposed to something, you get this exoticism of something else can make you at first either really, really impressed or really, really resistant to learning the other thing. And eventually you start to, to sort of see the different dimensions of it. So, for example, there was a student of mine who did an internship in the U.S. for like maybe a month or two. And she came back so impressed that everything in the States is wow. And they're so nice and they're so open and they're so open to diversity and so on. And I, and I lived in the States for a whole year and I didn't face a lot of discrimination in Houston. And I was just talking to, to someone about this today that, you know, Houston, Texas, and they, everyone told me to expect a lot of discrimination and there wasn't a lot of it, but there was a little bit of it, you know, and to, to say that, oh, everything was wow, it's just because you, you had a short experience there. But then you need to be really, really, you need to look a lot more closely and engage a lot more deeply with another culture to start seeing it in all of its, you know, from, from different angles and not just see the part that's really impressive or just see the parts that's really, that's making you resistant. So um, just a very quick one about the resistance is, for example, the first time I had, I only had this once actually, but the first time I had a student come to my class who had her face covered. It used to be not allowed on my campus, but uh, for some reason they allowed it. And so I had a student whose face was covered. I couldn't see her face at all. And my first impression was like, oh, my God, how am I going to deal with this person? And how am I going to know what she's thinking? And how is she going to respond to my class? And I was very resistant to it. But then with interacting with her over a long period of time, I just started to see her as a full person with, you know, the whole person with, with all the different angles to her. And I learned how to deal with her, even though I couldn't see her face, and to sort of know what she's feeling and thinking. And you think this is not really possible, but it is. You can tell a lot by just a person's eyes and their posture and all that. And so, so I think the point is, though, that you need, you know, deep, sustained interaction with a person or a group of people to be able to understand that culture. It's not something that just getting exposed to for a very short period of time when you're traveling on a trip that you could do that. I mean, you can be on a trip and do all the touristy things and not learn anything, mm -hmm. or you can try to engage deeply with people in public transportation or you could try to engage deeply with even the people at your hotel, because you can see them every day, right? It's not going to be just like on a bus trip. But you can also try to maintain relationships with people different from yourself online. And even though you're not living their lives, you get to know a lot about them. And I, I know that I'll, I know a lot about a lot of other people that I've only met online just by this sustained interaction. You know, you, they know when it's Ramadan here and they know why my sleep is like that for that month. I was familiar with Ramadan before, but there was another holiday that recently happened that you made me familiar with. I, of course, now I can't think of what it was, but I went and looked <laughs> it up to have a better appreciation um, for your culture. Yeah, that's always helpful. It's amazing what we can find out about each other. I was going <laughs> to mention a children's book. I bought a book. I think it's called Hannah's Ears, but I will make sure that I have the title right and get that in the okay. show notes. But okay. It's about a young girl who has really, really big ears and okay. they all make fun of her and she's very lonely and she goes out into nature and feels alone and she meets a tree and the tree is also very lonely because the tree, the tree's friends have all been chopped down. Mm -hmm. And so the tree starts to tell her the stories of, and, and because she has such large ears, she's able to hear the tree's voice and stories. Aww. And the tree says, you know, you, because you understand me 
and you have heard my stories, you can be the one to go back into the city and tell the other people what's happening so they can help rescue me and bring, bring friends. And she goes back and tells the story to the mayor and the different townspeople. And as they listen, their ears get bigger too. (laughs) As you were talking, it sort of reminded me of that because you sort of think like, oh, either they'll stop making fun of her for having big ears and everyone will live happily ever after or, you know, but I I didn't expect that the end of that story would be that everyone else also got those same large ears. They're better able to hear, better to empathize. Yeah. Do you know what I like about that story? Is that's a reversal of standards. Mm -hmm. It makes big ears a good thing. Yes. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that story. And I only found it because our daughter's name is Hannah. And so I had been on Amazon just looking at books that have the word Hannah in the title. (laughs) I happened upon it. It's a really great book. Yeah. (laughs) Talk a little bit about these stages. You you started, started to wind us through them, but one of them is the issue of minimizing and trivializing Yes. The others, yes. could you talk a little bit about that, yeah. that phase? So so this is the Hammer et al. model, right? And it's called the developmental model of intercultural sensitivity. And so this is what similar to what I was saying earlier, which is didn't you know, there's a part where there's a reversal where you're very impressed or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a part where you're defensive about your own culture versus others. And then there's this part where you minimize the differences between a culture, uh, different cultures and rem- just romanticize the other as we're all human and all that, yeah. which is a good stage to be. I mean, it's better than looking at the other person as an alien, right? Yeah. I, that's, why, that's why we're saying it's a spectrum. And there's a stage, there is a stage where that's the case and it's not bad. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a song in, in the Lion Guard. It's called Sisi Nisawa. I'm not sure what language that is. One, some African language that they're tokenizing, I guess. But it's, uh, it means we're the same. And it's about lions and hyenas saying they're the same, even though lions and hyenas are known in nature not to really be good friends, but that they're actually the same in a lot of things. And they are, but they're also different in a lot of things, right? Mm. And so there's, there's uh, you know, th- this model has ethnocentric stage- stages and ethno-relative stages. And as you move into the ethno-relative stages, you start to accept that there are multiple viable worldviews. And that's the point. It's just not to know that there are different worldviews and that's it, but to respect that these are all viable, that there are these different ways of seeing something, and then possibly incorporating some of these different worldviews in your own thinking and behavior. And then finally, integration where you become able to move between different cultures and worldviews. And two people who are really good at representing that uh, is someone called Homi Baba, who, who writes about the notion of cultural hybridity and third space. And he talks about how, you know, in in a lot of, colo- you know, colonial cultures, cultures that, that they're thinking about the pure pre-colonial Egyptian or Indian or whatever, but actually none of us are pure that way. And we're all cultural hybrids. And then when I interact with you, we're meeting in somewhere in between my culture and yours that we can sort of meet somewhere in between that we can both use. So I have to speak in English for you to understand me. And when I speak in English, I express myself in a certain way. But you're also coming one step. I mean, maybe I'm taking 10 steps to get to you and you're taking one step towards me, but we're still meeting somewhere. That's not your culture or mine, but somewhere in between them. Mm. And so he calls that, um, he's, you know, he says each of us is a hybrid, but also we meet in between our cultures. Um, and Edward Said as someone who, I don't know if he's very, I mean, he's most known for his work on Orientalism, but he's, he's done a lot more than just that. Uh, but he talks about the notion of world travelers and about, you know, if you're educated well enough and, and exposed well enough to different cultures, you're able to to act 
as a free agent in all these different cultures and be that different person, different. And, and he himself, he's a Palestinian who, Christian Palestinian who grew up in Egypt and then went to the U.S. And he has all these different dimensions to his um, his own identity. And he can he belongs in all of them. You know what I mean? He doesn't belong to one because when you're that kind of very hybrid person, you don't actually belong to any of them in any pure sense. And and being that, I think a lot of uh, definitely people who intermarry or people who live for a long time in a culture different their, than their own become like that, uh, and they're they're a third culture or a fourth culture or whatever. You know, not necessarily something to aspire to if you're not in a situation where you can develop it, but I think definitely helpful to to be able to sort of try to 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 at least incorporate some different worldviews. So I find it like very interesting when a Western person has very very um, I don't know, Buddhist values or, you know, something that you wouldn't normally expect to find in a Western person, you know, like just today, I, I, I wrote, I was, I was pretty angry at something and I wrote a blog post and someone responded to that blog post and she's, I think she's just English. She looks just English. I mean, I, I don't know her very well, but she's English. And she shared with me someone written by a Vietnamese woman whose name I don't know how to pronounce properly, but I'll put that in the show notes as one of the recommendations. Hmm. And she's a Vietnamese woman, and she has a book called uh, Woman, Native, Other. And she's trying to describe herself that way. And the thing is that, you know, the person who wrote that read her book and she's influenced by her and everything, but she's just a white English woman, you know? Hmm. There was, I was not expecting that person to give me that reference. And that reference represented how I was feeling about myself. Hmm as, you know, Egyptian, Muslim, other. I, that was how I was feeling in that post. And she felt that and she made that connection and she gave it to me. You know what I mean? And so the, that, that sort of made me feel like she has a lot of intercultural sensitivity uh, in doing that. And so, the, so that she got from reading. So that was interesting. It's so <laughs> nice when we can find someone else that can give something a voice that we have been feeling yeah. Definitely. Let's talk a little bit more about the classroom because, of course, I, it sounds like both you and I are in full agreement how rich it can be for our students to get a deep dive into intercultural experiences where they actually travel to another place and have that sense of loneliness, but also the opportunity for learning that, that they can embrace. What about yeah. right here in our classrooms, because we're not traveling too far to get to them, how do we increase those opportunities and, and think about moving people along this continuum from wherever they are, just, right. just, just moving them along a little bit? Right. So, so, I mean, the first question is, of course, not all campuses are the same. So some campuses will have more diversity in the classroom than others. In my campus, for example, you're not going to find international students in your mechanical engineering class. And so, and also not a professor who wants to talk about that mm. kind of thing. Uh, but you find a few in other contexts. So, but in some, in some, you know, in some campuses, you'll find people who look like they're all the same, but they might have different histories or, uh, you know, come from. Every, you know, in America, especially, you'll have a lot of people who are immigrants from wherever. But even in Egypt, you'll find people who have lived somewhere else. Like trying to to bring out whatever elements of difference we have in the class and trying to see if people are willing. Um, to talk about that and bring that up and, and, and make it part of uh, our identities. Like one of the things I do in my classes is ask my students to do an alternative CV at the beginning of the class. This was an activity we developed for uh, Digital Writing Month. And it's about, you know, presenting yourself, not with what degrees you have or whatever that you do for 
regular CV, but how you want people to know you. Mm. And I don't specify what students need to say. And some of them say a lot of really interesting things about themselves and reveal those things about themselves. And it makes a difference in the class. But the thing is, what if your students don't reveal a lot about themselves personally, or they're not willing to, to, you know, they're not racially diverse, they're not culturally very diverse. It happens sometimes. And then the thing to do then is to figure out ways of going outside beyond the classroom, even when you're in in that class. So I, I have my students do some things on Twitter. Now, how deeply you can engage will depend on what kind of course you have and how much time you can give into it. There's there's a program called Solia, which I I volunteered with, I facilitated, I coached facilitators, and it's it's pretty simple to sort of integrate it into your class if you're interested. And uh, this is one of the things I'll put in the show notes as well. What they do is that they bring students from they bring a group of eight students, four of them and four of them from Western countries and then from Arab Muslim countries. And they bring them into dialogue about, it's intercultural dialogue about that relationship between East and West or Arab Muslim West America. And they, they problematize all of that. They have facilitators from both sides of the world to sort of balance that out. And they recognize that there are power differences in that connect in that context. They recognize that there's differences in technology and infrastructure between the people from both sides. So if there are people in rural areas of the Arab world, their internet connection is going to be weaker. They recognize that the use of English is always going to privilege some people over others, but they still try to bring that explicitly and talk about it and bring students and help them over a period of several weeks, you know, understand their own biases, understand the other slowly. Uh, and th this can be integrated into any course. And I'm mentioning this specifically because this is something that other people, if they're interested in, they could go ahead and contact Solia and try to have in their own courses. If it fits their learning outcomes, you could do it with a political science or international relations course, but you could do it with a mass comm journalism type of course because they discuss media. Um, you can do all kinds of things with this. Mm. So I just want to share something else, um, which is culturally relevant pedagogy. I'm not sure if this is a familiar term to a lot of people, and I'll share again some resources in the at the end of the podcast. But it's all about how do you ensure that whatever group of students you have in the class, that what you do in the class is culturally relevant to them. And it's usually comes from race theory and that kind of thing. But also it applies a lot to intercultural learning too. Because if you're in a classroom and there is diversity in the classroom, uh, then just simply by addressing all the different cultures in the classroom, in your readings, in your pedagogy, and in your choice of topics, rather than having them all, you know, Eurocentric or white, white Western centric type of thing, how aware are people are of how diverse their syllabi are, are all your students finding themselves as possible scholars in that field if they choose to be? And this is the, what, what I was remembering by Anne-Marie Perez just before we were talking, is that she was talking about the experience of being the only lonely or something like that in a in a conference, uh, where being the only person of a certain uh, c uh, culture or color in a certain location, how that makes you feel, you don't want your students to feel that way, mm -hmm. right? So you don't want your students in your classroom to feel like they're studying chemistry, even if it's chemistry, right? So this is like pretty like not a very cultural type of thing, right? But I I always feel like if we're studying chemistry in an Egyptian classroom and everything we talk about in chemistry is comes from the West and we never mention any Arab or Muslim or Egyptian contribution to the field at all that makes the students feel alienated from that field in some ways you know 
Um, if we discuss biology and we discuss issues of things like stem cell research, which isn't really done over here, and we don't discuss things like organ transplants, which is a big ethical issue here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just like how you choose all of the the content and your and and the authors and everything that you choose in your class, um, and, and the way the way to to do this culturally relevant pedagogy, if you yourself are very culturally different from your students, I think, is to ask the students, ask the parents, ask other faculty in your institution who are of different cultures to help you. Yeah. Don't assume that you on your own, you're not. Like no matter who you are, no matter how many different cultures you belong to, those are the only cultures you belong to, right? Mm -hmm. Like if someone is, you know, American and they're married to an Indian, sure they know about these two cultures, but they don't know anything about Swedish culture. They don't know anything about Mexican culture, you know? Yeah, and your material is just going to get keep getting richer if you just keep adding, you know, a lot, opening yourself to allowing all of that to come. In, I think. And everyone, I think, benefits in some way. It's not easy. It's hard, and it might be difficult for you as the teacher to incorporate because it's going to be unfamiliar stuff, and it might feel like it's irrelevant. But I really think it makes a big difference to students. Like when I when I teach educational game design, and I make sure that my students read stuff by Egyptian people who write about educational game design and I make sure that they find uh, Arab created games, that mm. really makes a difference to them because it makes them feel, oh, maybe someday I could be a game designer, even though there's we don't have the major. It's just one one part of one course that I teach, but it's just uh, sort of bring that a bit closer, which is, I think, moving a little bit away from uh, intercultural learning. <laughs> But it's also, um, I think, important. So. You and I knew that we would. We before we even press record, <laughs> we, said, we we honed in, but we knew that we we, we would uh, get off track in the best ways possible. This is the time in the show where we normally each get to share recommendations. But since I shared with you that I hadn't come up with what mine was going to be yet, you volunteered to take my my recommendation segment, and so you're going to give us a double hitter. The floor is yours. Yes. <laughs> So uh, one is something that we've been talking about. I fell in love with this professor. I guess she's an assistant professor uh, called Rua Benjamin Mm. at Princeton, who gave the keynote at the ISTE conference this year. And she's phenomenal. And in that one hour keynote, she talks about maybe uh, 20 really, really, really strong points. And she's a great presenter. And one of the things that really stood out for me was how she talks about discriminatory design. She's got a TED talk about that as well. But I, I like her um, her hour long keynote a lot more. And it, it made me think a lot. And everyone I think who's listened to it has been really, really you know, affected by it. I, I think I've listened to it like two or three times now. And I pause and it makes me think. So it's definitely worth thinking about and listening to. And uh, you'll really thank me for this one. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's also a blog post by Sherry Spilitz, um, In Curiosity, it's called. Or there, I think it's called There's a Thing, or In Curiosity is a Thing. And, and it's, it's relevant to what we were talking about today, about um, intercultural learning and, you know, whether we're sort of, raised not to be curious about things just to let them be and how that affects our interaction with each other and that's that's worth reading um and then the third thing i wanted to recommend is solia which is the this program i've been talking about now there's a lot of kinds of intercultural exchange programs but i i know for example that it's quite difficult for for students to, to you know you can't have every single student do an exchange program uh and so this thing is a you know, low risk, low cost way to start building intercultural maturity that will, I think, help a lot of people if they later t- travel somewhere else. 
But even if they never do, they can build relationships with people from different parts of the world and just start doing something about it and, you know, make use of the internet that we've already got. And then the last thing is, very last thing is just, I would recommend reading about culturally relevant pedagogy and I'll, I'll provide resources on that as well as about models of intercultural maturity. You are so generous with your time, both for this podcast community, but also to me personally, I just treasure when we get a chance to go back and forth and you continue to challenge me and challenge others in such a positive and encouraging ways. It's it's interesting thinking of you as a teacher that you challenge your students and I consider myself one of them and say you can do better (laughs) but yet you're also encouraging us all the way along and giving us resources and support to continue our own development so thank you so much for today and for always and you do this for a lot of us too Bonnie so thank you for for your your I mean I, I love having these conversations with you and I learn a lot by just being with you so thank you Thanks to all of you for listening to today's conversation. As always, if you have feedback on the show, get potential guests or topics, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly email, that'll come into your inbox and it'll give you the show notes of all of the great resources, especially this week. It's going to be packed. It's going to be a packed set of show notes you're definitely going to want to get. And also an article about teaching or productivity written by me. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And I so appreciate all the conversation that's happening in the Teaching in Higher Ed Slack channel. And if any of you are on Slack or want to try it out, it's a great place just to have a little bit of more privacy for asking questions that you don't want in a public space. And it's a great community. So thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time.